Thanks, everybody. If you have your Bibles this morning, grab those and turn to Psalm 13. We're going to spend our time in Psalm 13 this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some in the pews in front of you or underneath your seats if you're in the back. Uh, And if you just forgot one, feel free to use that today. If you don't own one, just take that with you. That's our gift to you. Um, Before we get into this... Um, I want to up, update you on a scenario you guys, I'm sure, are aware of, but more, more talk to you about uh, the response of the church. Um, as you know, probably, uh, since Tuesday morning, Dan Adams, a dear, dear uh, member of this church, a beloved brother in Christ, has been missing. Um, and uh, it's been encouraging to me to see the body of Christ be the body of Christ this week. Um, and... Um, we still get that opportunity. Um, and so one of the things we're asking that you do uh, is every night, uh, wherever you are at 7.30, just the, the, the deacons and staff of this church is asking you just to commit to an assembly of prayer. Uh, that every night until there's a resolution that you will gather in your homes, you'll gather if you're out, wherever you are, just gather with your family and those you love and just uh, pray for that family um, until, um, until God does something. Um, and so this morning we're going to do that before we even get in the sermon. We're just going to, we're going to come together as the body of Christ because um, this is what it is. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 says when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Um, and this is what, it's these times of life that um, church offers, God's, Jesus' church offers what nothing else can offer. Um, community and God's power and people coming alongside you. You can't find that anywhere. Uh, but in a place like this. And um, so thank you for being the body of Christ this week, and, uh, and let's continue it. Um, so if you would, just join me in a word of prayer. Father, how fitting that we just sing how much we need you. Um, God, we do every, every single hour we need you, but every now and then you have the grace and the decency and the kindness to peel back the curtain and show us just how much we do. Lord, it's, it's difficult lessons. It's hard lessons. It'd be easier if we just grasped that when times are good. But sometimes you need to show us. You're doing that now. And so we just pray this morning for this dear family. We pray for Dan, God, wherever he is. Lord, that you would just protect him. That you would keep him safe. God, did you bring him home? Um, I'm thankful for the people in this church who have rallied around this family and pray that they would continue to do so. I'm thankful for um, the peace that you've given Lynn and Kristen and Drew and Kim and Eric and Isaac in, uh, in a, just a nightmarish situation. Um, Lord, your word talks about the peace that passes understanding. Any peace in this is peace that is beyond understanding. And um, so we're grateful for that. And uh, we just pray that as we go through this, Lord, this, this little chapter in your word, um, at this little church in this little town of Terre Haute, that somehow uh, you would be exalted, um, that you would uh, speak peace to that family and also anybody here today. God, it's, um, life continues for everyone. There's uh, countless burdens that were brought in this room today. Um, there are countless struggles. There are weights that we've all carried in. And we know that you're big enough to handle them all. Um, 
And so before we open your word, before we come to your table and dine with you, we want to just lay those at your feet and trust you with them this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in the beginning of everything, um, there was this vast, empty darkness, is what the Bible tells us. There was no form, there was no life, there was no vitality, and what happened was God spoke. He didn't toil, he didn't labor, he didn't sweat, he just spoke. And with just the whisk of his creative power, light burst through the darkness for the first time. At the sound of his voice, just, just the command of his word, the use of his powers, the miracles haven't stopped since. First he separated day and night, then made land and water, then there were creatures of the sea and the ground, and then he made man and woman in his image. And through those image bearers, ever since, he has continued to display his miraculous, awesome power. Moses striking the ground with his staff, and the Nile turns to blood, the Red Sea parts, and the rocks bring forth water. Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and it consumes everything on the soaked altar on Mount Carmel. Elisha lays across the widow's son, who is dead, and he is brought back to life. It ramps up even more when Jesus, God incarnate, comes onto the scene. There's this little uh, conversation in John 1, where Jesus meets Nathaniel and says... Yeah, I saw you earlier when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip found you. And Nathaniel, knowing this is impossible, says, you must be the son of God. And Jesus basically responds, wait, that impressed you? Like, I'm, I'm just getting started. You haven't seen anything yet. And where he went, water has turned to wine. The, the, those lame and crippled from birth leapt and danced. The mute sang songs and the deaf heard. There was a woman who fought through a crowd just to touch the edge of his robe. And when she did, she was immediately healed of a disease that no physician had been able to help her with. Jairus' daughter, a widow's only son, Lazarus, were all called back from the grave. And in his greatest crescendo, in his greatest act, Jesus walks out of his own grave, defeating death forever. He then imparts to his followers the Holy Spirit, and immediately we see in Acts they start doing the same thing. Peter and John heal a man crippled from birth. Paul is casting out demons and healing the sick. Acts 5 tells us that people came from all over to be around Peter, just like they did Jesus, to be healed of various illnesses, and sometimes all it took was for his shadow to cross them. At this Bible, God's word from its very first sentence to its very last has running through its pages story after story after story of God's miraculous, stunning, terrifying, awesome power. And these stories are awesome and they are incredible and they are true and they are not the point of the Bible. They simply aren't. And in fact, if we make them the point... Their very existence can cause anguish in the hearts and minds of believers when life doesn't go as planned. Because how does a parent who just buried a daughter read Luke 8 where Jesus raises and heals Jairus' daughter and not wonder, well, why not my little girl? Where is my miracle? How does someone who has poured their heart out to God to do something read Psalm 29 where it tells us that just at the sound of his voice, uh, that it's powerful, majestic, and just his voice shakes mountains and splits cedars in two and not think, why hasn't God spoken into my circumstance? 
How does someone who has prayed repeatedly for a loved one and thus far seen nothing read accounts of people receiving complete freedom from their demons in the Gospels and not wonder, why doesn't that happen when I pray? You see, the truest test of faith is not how we respond when God moves from heaven in amazing power and does something glorious in our lives, which he does from time to time. The truest test of faith is how we respond when it seems as if all of heaven is silent to us. What do we do when we call on his power and seemingly get none of it? What do we do when we pray until we can pray no more and have seen nothing? What do we do when there are no more tears to cry and all that remains is a nightmarish emptiness and still it's as if God has turned his back and has not moved? What do we do then? And one of the things that I love about the word of God is that in revealing to us who God is, it also prepares us for everything that we're going to have to face because the, the Bible isn't just full of stories of God's miraculous power. It's also at the same time full of stories of people wondering why God isn't displaying that power in their life and in their situation. There is chapter after chapter of in Job, of Job just wondering, when, when is God going to move? When is he going to answer my prayer? When is he going to come to my aid? Jeremiah had one of the most frustrating, least successful ministries in the history of creation, and God made sure to include his entire story in the Bible. There's literally an entire book called Lamentations in the Old Testament, which all it is is laments. It's just a record of Jeremiah's laments, his grieving, his expressions of frustration and sorrow. We're in Psalms this morning. There are 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms. More than 50 of them are Psalms of lament. More than a third of the book are Psalms where David and others just pour their heart out to God, wondering why he's not moving, why he's not answering, and where is he? Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 10, oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help every Day I call you, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. And here's what you need to know about God He is not threatened by these prayers, He's not shocked by honesty. For one, He he already knows what you're thinking and feeling anyway. But also, your questioning of His seeming inactivity doesn't cause Him to rethink His sovereign plan. In fact, what we're told in the scriptures is that he wants you to come to him with those hurts. He wants you to come to him with pains and doubts, even if you think he's the cause of them. And to prove that to us, he not only did not reject these prayers of David and Job and Elijah and Jeremiah and others, he included them in his word so that we could forever see and read and learn from them, so that we can know for sure there will be times in our journey we feel the exact same way that they do. So this morning, I want to take a look with all of you at Psalm 13. It's one of these psalms of lament. In the midst of all the uncertainty swirling around us, I want us to see and discover a way forward. How do we exalt Christ? How do we glorify God? How do we find the strength to face the day when heaven is silent to us? So look at Psalm 13. We're going to start in verse 1, in which David asked this question. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? 
How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes, or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. Now, you don't have to be that astute to see the emotion and anguish that are just poured out in these verses. David is described elsewhere in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He had an incredibly intimate relationship with God. He knows who who God is. He knows God's power. He knows that God doesn't forget any things. That rationally he's aware of all this. But at this point in his life, emotionally he feels as if God has forgotten him. And he wonders if that might go on forever. It's the same David... Right, who writes in Psalm 139 that there's nowhere that he can go to get away from the presence of God. It's the same God who's described in Psalm 116 as one who bends his ear towards us to listen to us when we pray. But now, David says, it's as if you are purposely turning your back to me. And how long is that going to go on? How long must I struggle? How long must sorrow just reign supreme in my life? I've prayed, I've cast my burdens on you, I've poured out my heart to you. How long, God, how long will you remain silent? And in verse 3, he even pleads, he begins pleading, turn back, turn and answer me. You are not just the Lord, you are my God, so turn back to me, hear me, answer me, because if you don't, God, I will die. Bring joy, bring relief, restore the sparkle to my eyes, or this will kill me. I can't take it anymore. Have you ever been there? Sure you have. Some of you are there right now, and the rest of you will be there again someday. I can assure you that. And what I want to do today is I want you to see that it's okay to feel what you're feeling. But I also want you to see this amazing shift in Psalm 13. That we're going to look at. And then we're going to talk about how it's even possible. Because David has poured out his anguish to God for four verses. He has questioned where God is. He has claimed that God has forgotten him and turned his back on him. Which makes verses 5 and 6 all the more remarkable. Listen to what he says in verse 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. There's a shift there. Something changes, and it's not David's life, and it's not his circumstance. It's his focus. He he declares his trust, but his trust is in God's unfailing love. His trust is not that he's going to get an answer to prayer. His trust is not that everything will work out perfectly. His trust is that God's love will never fail him regardless of how this plays out. He still chooses joy. Why? Because God has rescued him before. He still sings to God. Why? Because no matter what he's facing now, he knows that God is good. When he writes verses 5 and 6, he's in the same amount of anguish, the same amount of trouble, the same amount of depression. Nothing has changed. Nothing has improved. Nothing has got better. And yet he still claims trust and joy and singing. And the million dollar question is how? 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 
Because wouldn't it normally go like this? Isn't this how we normally do it? God, you saved me. God, you answered my prayer. You came through. You blessed my life. You gave me health. You fixed my problem. You restored my marriage. You gave me peace. And so now I'm going to praise you. Now I'm going to trust you. Now I'm going to rejoice in you. But David says, the Lord has forgotten me. He has turned from me. You have left me in a state of anguish and sorrow. And I praise you and I trust you and I rejoice in you. Because somehow to David, those things were not mutually exclusive. In fact, they went together with such harmony that he included them in the exact same song. So if you feel this morning as if God has turned from you and forgotten you, or in preparation for when you eventually feel like that, I want us to look at some truths that we find in the word of God so that even when we hit rock bottom, we can still trust and we can still praise and we can still rejoice in our God. And some of these will be easier than the other ones. And the first one is this. We must release our need to know why. We must let go of our need to know why. It's the very first question our human nature wants to ask. When something bad is happening, something tragic happens, we want to know why. How did this happen? Who do we blame? How do we keep this from occurring again? But in the Bible, we find verses like this one in Proverbs 20, 24 that says, The Lord directs our steps, so why try to understand everything along the way? See, the Bible is clear that there is one sovereign being in the universe, and that is God. Here's how A.W. Tozer puts it. He writes, God is said to be absolutely free because no one and no thing can hinder him or compel him or stop him. He is able to do as he pleases, always, everywhere, and forever. And see, it's not just that God is free to do whatever he wants and however he pleases. It's also that he operates on levels that you and I can't even begin to comprehend or understand. Isaiah 55, God tells us this. He says to us, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are are far beyond anything that you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And what happens is so much angst and so much stress and so much worry departs my life when I fully embrace the truth that there is a will and plan for my life and I do not have it. It's not mine. And there is a sovereign being moving and working and planning and allowing things and events that I would never ever choose and the reason that is wonderful is because his thoughts are not my thoughts the reason that's wonderful is because his thoughts are holy and they are perfect and they are for me and my thoughts are limited and sinful and though selfish ultimately for my loss The reason that it's wonderful is because my sovereign God is preparing me for an eternity with him, shaping me, informing me to be like him so that I can have the ultimate experience of joy forever in eternity with him. And to shape and form a sinner into holiness, there has to be loss and there has to be sacrifice and there has to be hurt and pain. And all of it, all of it is designed for my gain. Job got this when he asked his wife in Job 2, should we only accept good things from the Lord and never bad? You will drive yourself crazy asking why. One thing I appreciate about David in Psalm 13 is he never asked why. He asked how long. It's a fair question. How long, Lord? 
but his trust remained in the unfailing love of the sovereign God of the universe. Secondly, when heaven seems silent, run to the Lord. Run to him. Do not withdraw. Do not isolate. Do not flee. When you can't feel him, pursue his presence even more. When you can't hear him, ingest his word. That's him speaking to you. When it seems he doesn't answer, pray more fervently. In Philippians chapter 4, we are told to surrender everything to God, to present all our requests to him. James chapter 4, we are told to draw near to God. 1 Peter 5 says to take all of your carries, all of your worries, all of your anxieties, and cast them upon God. This is not the time to flee. This is not the time to isolate or withdraw. That will only make your pain worse. It will only make your suffering more intense, and it will open you up to an attack. Often we underestimate our enemy. We underestimate how evil and wicked and cunning he really is. And you can be certain that Satan will use the worst moments in your life to attack you and make you doubt your faith. The worst story about this that's been personally shared to me is one I've rarely ever told. Because it's just so freaky. One of my good friends growing up in Cloverdale, Brad McClure, he's now a pastor in southern Indiana. Um, Before that, he was an assistant pastor in Michigan. I got a call one day that remains one of the worst phone calls of my life that Brad had a five-month-old son. They put Braden into his crib for a nap. And an hour later, they went to get him up and he wasn't breathing. They rushed him to the hospital there in Michigan and Brad and his wife were ushered into this private waiting room and sat there waiting to hear news. And the doctor came in and told them there was nothing they could do. Braden was gone. A week later... He was back in Cloverdale, and I took him out golfing just to get his mind off things, and he was just unloading that whole experience to me. And he shared this story, which remains one of the scariest stories I've ever been told. He said that when the doctor left the room, he was left sitting there alone with his wife, trying to process what just happened to them, and he heard a voice say to him, God just killed your son, now curse him and walk away. Now, I'm, I'm thankful Right, that Brad had a close enough walk with Jesus that he grabbed his wife and immediately started praying against that. Right, that in the worst moment of their life, when the enemy came at them with all they had, they ran to the Lord and he carried them through. But also take that story as a warning. When life is at its worst, do not isolate yourself from God. Do not isolate yourself from his spirit. Do not isolate yourself from his word. Do not isolate yourself from his people and his church. You cannot do that. You run to him. And in doing so, you cling to the promises that we are given in God's true and never-changing word. We're told in the Bible that God's promises are always true and they are many. In Philippians, when we're told that we are to present all our requests to God, we are promised then that he will give us the peace that passes understanding. In James, when we are told to draw near to God, we are promised then that he will draw near to us. In 1 Peter, when we are told to cast our worries on him, we are promised then that he cares for us. In Romans 8, we are promised that our present sufferings cannot even compare to the future glory that he will reveal in us. Same chapter promises us that God will work out 
everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What David found hope in, what David found joy and trust in was not his life, was not his circumstances, was not his scenario. It was the promises. It was the promises that our God is there when we cannot feel him at all. It's the promises that our God is working when we cannot see it. It's the promises that he is bringing out good for us even when we don't know what that is yet. When life is at its worst, you hold and you cling to the promises given to us in Scripture. And lastly, lastly, this is a difficult one. But you fix your eyes on Jesus, not on your problem. I know how hard that is when I say it. I know that it's, it's easy to just get mentally consumed with what's facing you, but it's, it's worth it. Hebrews 12 tells us to fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why do that? Because he's the only one who can fix this. He's the only one who will carry us through. And, and get this, he's the only one who's been there before. So we're told in the Gospels that when Jesus hung on the cross... The loudest thing he said, the thing he screamed out the loudest was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Hebrews says that Jesus faced every single struggle and every temptation that we will face. And this is huge because when we get to where David was in Psalm 13, we have a high priest who has walked that road. When we get to the point where we cry out in anguish, God, why won't you respond? Why don't you answer me? Why does it feel as if you've forgotten and turned away from me? Then Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, says to us, I know, child. I remember that exact feeling. I remember that pain. I was there. And I will never leave you or forsake you. And I will walk with you right now as someone who knows exactly what you're going through. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he's been there. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is with us now. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is our miracle. It's easy, isn't it? It's really easy to look through the Bible and see story after story of God's miraculous power and wonder, where is that in my life? It's easy to to wonder why God isn't responding when we pray earnestly for a miracle that we haven't seen, but if we fix our eyes on Jesus, what we see and what, we, what becomes clear is that he is the only miracle we need. Where's our miracle? Where's my miracle? Where's your miracle? It's the God of the universe hanging on a cross for the sins of the world. It's the flesh that was torn. It's the hands and the feet that were nailed. It's the side that was pierced. It's the blood that flowed down from the cross, bringing forgiveness for all who trust in him. Our miracle is the empty tomb. Our miracle is that all who belong to Christ, because of the empty tomb, will not face death forever, but instead, in an instant, in a blink of an eye, we will be transported from a world where where there is weakness and sin and pain and loss and death to an eternal home where those things just aren't allowed. Our miracle is that sinners, sinners stained like you and me, get to be co-heirs with Christ for all eternity. And the resounding ramifications of that miracle, of that one act of God, means that if we never heard from God again, if he never moved on our behalf, if he not even once, if he turned away and refused to answer any more prayers for as long as our days, even then we could trust in his unfailing love. Even then we could rejoice because he has rescued us. Even then we could sing because he is good.
So whatever it is you brought in today, whatever insurmountable obstacles or nightmare sits in front of you, if you feel that God has turned from you, first of all, that's okay. But then let go of your need to know why. Run to the Lord. Cling to his promises. We'll join you in calling out for a miracle, but just remember that in Jesus, you have the only miracle you'll ever need. Let's pray. Father, one of the hardest things in life is just the uncertainty. It's when you're operating on levels that we cannot grasp. It's when pain and suffering comes our way and not only can't, do we not know why, now we may never know on this side of heaven. But Lord, you've prepared us for that. You've showed us that not only is that coming, but you've made a way for us. God, in the moments when we doubt your goodness, may we see your cross. In the moments when we doubt whether or not you're gracious, may we see the blood of Jesus flowing down. In the moments whether we wonder whether you've forgotten us or you love us, may we understand the price that you paid for us. So God, as we come now to this table, we come to take a part in this meal that is, rem- that is meant to do that very thing, to remind us God, that we never have to doubt your love and we never have to doubt your goodness because of that act on the cross. So guys, we eat today. As we dine with you, bring peace where peace is needed. Bring hope where hope has been lost. Bring joy where it's been absent. Bring conviction where it is needed. Bring life to those who are spiritually dead. Do what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward now. They're going to serve the elements to you. But in the process of that, if, if anybody just needs to come forward and use this altar, then certainly it's there for you in that purpose as well. Um, as you take of this bread, as you take of this juice, we'll take of it together. Um, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your eyes on the cross. Fix your eyes on God's final answer to the question, am I good and am I for you and I love you?